Hi everyone, and welcome to Focus Football, a podcast which explores the career journeys, recounts the experiences of football and sports industry professionals, and provides insights to those wishing to enter the wonderful world of football and sports by hearing from those that have come before them. Here's a snippet of today's episode. Like for me, the most important, most interesting part for me is the people around the game, not the actual game itself anymore. So trying to get young people or not even young people, people who want to work in the industry to, to offer some specific help rather than saying I'll do anything is a big change and make that yes very easy um, is a is a big thing that people can do and it and it definitely helps. That was, you know, like when you're the when you're the little kid, it's not, you know, you always say oh, I want to be a manager, but actually being a manager isn't just money and and, and salary uh, sorry money and, and status it's also like can be you've got to be harsh and you've got to be tough sometimes this was an area right for development and i knew that by going into southampton and into west ham i was able to make quite a good impact quite quickly i think it's hard to work for the club that you support but i think even if you do to be that professional you know to be that guy you're not especially if you really enjoy football you are there's no better seat, really, other than being on the pitch. When Southampton went to the cup final in 2017, I was on the bench at Wembley. Today's guest is a gentleman that spent over a decade within mainstream football with clubs across North America and in England. He's a leading voice within the world of player care, having supported players through international relocations, navigate the challenges of starting in a new club, and the countless other issues players often face off the pitch. He's now gone on to set up his own consultancy dedicated to player care, team operations, and player well-being. So here we go, an episode with Hugo Schechter. Well, it's, it's great to have you on, Hugo. And obviously, I don't think we, we obviously haven't met before and we've only ever exchanged a few messages online. And so I think it's really extra special for us knowing that you've agreed to come on and um, actually do the podcast with us. I must say, like, I do feel like we've we've really got a good sense of who you are, Hugo, because in preparation for today, both myself and Hamad have actually done quite a bit of um, digging to find out, I guess, about your career and where you've come from and what you've done. And I must say, I don't think you're camera shy at all. You've done quite a few of these podcasts and interviews. I'm sorry if you've had to sit through all the other ones, but hopefully this can be the best yet. And uh, yeah, it'd be really good for everyone listening. No, it was great to get through. And like I said, it kind of just gave us a feeling for, for who you are, really, and, and just the incredible work that I think you've done to date. And really, you know, just to kind of start off by saying how you've obviously operated in in the world of mainstream football now for the best part of a decade and it's played a big part of your life obviously and I think what I'd really like to kick things off with you know is just a question of you know ultimately what does football mean to you? Oof. I mean when I was younger it was my passion uh, now I'd say unfortunately fortunately it's a job like I enjoy the people relationships like working with with individuals solving problems much more than i enjoy the matches i um it's funny now like as a consultant i can kind of pick and choose what i do work-wise and um while i'll go and see games or i'll go work match days to to observe for the report or the audit or, or the consulting to try and improve things i actively will try and uh negotiate working matches out of my contract uh just because i like I, i've done 500 matches like sat on the bench and like for me i've kind of I've not been and seen it all i haven't you know i haven't worked in the champions league and i haven't worked you know in the world cup or anything like that but like for me the most important most interesting part for me is the people around the game not the actual game itself anymore um which is mad because i came from a coaching background so it's just i think I think, you know, when you've seen the how the sausage is made a little bit, you kind of like, you don't want to eat it so much. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't mind watching a bit on the on TV, but um, I think my passion as a fan is is long gone. But I, I love what I do and I love working with interesting people from around the world. Another day, another way of uh, what football means to one of our guests. And <laughs> it's it's honestly the, we, we get a different answer every time and I emphasize on this is, Everyone has their own definition, and and we love that. And just to dive back on a bit more into you, tell us a bit more about your background, where you're from, and your first steps into kind of education. Yeah, I mean, I was I was born in the US. Uh, my dad's South African, my mom's English. Uh, moved to England when I was six. Did school here until I was uh, until I was eighteen, and then went to university in America. I did a sports business degree. Um, Got my coaching badges when I was 16 and then kind of was coaching for five, six years uh, at school and then at uni. Uh, I coached cricket. I coached football. I, I really just tried to get involved as much extracurricular stuff as possible. So 
I mean, I, I set up, uh, I mean, this is not super interesting, but I think what I did is I, I created a lot of sports management organizations at university that didn't exist. Um, we, I ran for student government. I, you know, took a cricket team to nationals in America, which was a really interesting experience because uh, it's not very big, a really big sport there. Um, obviously went and did coach football, coach men's football, women's football. You know, I, I really just got into embracing using my free time as a student as maximally as possible. And I really didn't worry about my grades or, you know, what my action, like, I can't, I think like my grade, my final grade at university was not good, but I left with a huge amount of work experience and connections and networking and internships, but my grades themselves weren't good, but no one has ever asked me in an interview, in a job, what did you get in English literature in your sophomore year of, high, of college? So yeah, um, I, I think I've done it the right way, but um yeah moved around the world and trying to get different experiences and meet different people and and get stuck in with as much as I could everyone's reasons for not getting good grades at your university are different but yours <laughs> seems to be a pretty decent uh, decent reason yeah I, I, I didn't even really party until my final year so I, it wasn't like I was having fun well I was having fun but it was like in it wasn't crazy times it was just yeah. it was actually hustling but yeah it was good no. Honestly, it's amazing to hear because I think a lot of people at university think of it differently and just want to live in a different way. You know, everyone's university years are seen to be, oh, like, how can I have fun and all these things? But your involvement on so many different levels is it's quite impressive. But just to jump back into why did you move to America for university and why not go to the UK where maybe that was a bit more home or closer to, to sports and football, which you preferred like cricket, as you said? Yeah, I think I wanted to kind of reinvent myself a little bit. And um, a lot of my friends went to, to sort of high school together, went to university together. And, you know, a lot of them are still friends now, which is which is great for them. But for me, I wanted to go and, um, you know, be meet new people in a different country. I mean, it was not a vastly different country. You know, I didn't really push myself that much. I moved from London to Washington, D.C. So, you know, it wasn't like I really was going like backpacking across the world, but met some really cool people um and, and didn't know anyone going into university which was a real challenge for me but actually I probably changed I decided I was gonna be a different person to the person I was at in high school and I just made it happen and then day one I was this new guy and hopefully a better version but uh yeah it was it was a, to, to move abroad was really great so yeah I, I enjoyed that experience for sure and why the significant involvement in extracurricular activities excuse my uh my mistake but why get so involved in so many of these different sports and really open up these sports? What got you going for those in particular? I, I think like I've always been interested in management and working with people and it was a good opportunity to do so. Um, I knew that my grades, I was never going to be academic. So I was never going to you know graduate with a, well, as a GPA system, a 4.0, which is the, the best grade. Um, I was never going to graduate with that. I, I, was always better with people and getting things done than I was with writing essays and studying. So I just felt like that was my best way into work. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it as well. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I hate coaching football. Or I hope, you know, you make good friends out of it. It's a great way to meet people when you're new. Um, so it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, I'm so sad that I'm working all these extra things. I used to love it. I used to absolutely love it. And um, and so it was very natural and it, it's resulted in me having a better opportunity of getting work and, and actually I learned a lot there you know being president of or head coach of a soccer team you know when I'm, I'm 19 and the oldest players are 22 and they're seniors and they've been there four years and they're like who the who the f is this you know this young kid who's telling me what to do well actually that was the same thing I had at Southampton when I was 23 and we had the oldest players 38 and so you know it was a very useful transferable skill in dealing with older people who maybe don't always respect you or always, you know, they, there's not that natural respect when someone's younger than you that, that, you know, you should be listening to them. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting and I, I'm really glad I did it, but I, it, I can't say it was as planned as like at 15, I was like, Hey, I'm going to do all these extracurriculars. I just kind of fell into it and naturally got involved in leadership positions. No, honestly, that's quite cool to hear because there's a lot of, honestly, people's skills you can learn from at the same time. And I think there's a lot of practicality there. And uh, academics isn't for everyone. I'm with you on that point. I don't think I've ever been one like you, more of a people's person, I believe to be. Yeah. But um, I'm sure there were a lot of takeaways and uh, university with this whole experience. Now we're going we're gonna to move on to more your your practical experience. And you, you did several internships, as I can see from your CV, across multiple sports. 
So how did those come about and what would you say were the biggest benefits of those internships? Yeah, I mean, uh, they were all through various either email, just emailing cold or connections or friends of friends or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's it was before LinkedIn. Uh, so it was kind of like emailing or writing letters, which I mean, it wasn't you, they had email. I wasn't that I'm not that old, but like it was like it wasn't as easy just like hit someone up on social media. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just try to do as, as many cool different things as possible. So, you know, whether it was working at the Indy 500, it was, you know, working at the FA at Wembley, it was working at Southampton. Um, you know, it was just always just applying to do things and just seeing what new thing I could do, which was cool. And, um, you know, just being willing to go in and get stuck in and do anything and but also like try and solve problems for people so I, I think you know this is one of the bits of advice I give to people trying to get in the industry now is people go well I'll do anything I'll you know if I if I get the emails even for my company going I'll you know I'll come and work and do anything and I'm like okay well okay we don't have toilets at the at the at the office but like if you like if you went to a, a football club and they're like okay well you can clean the toilets after every match day for free and they're like, well, okay, well, I don't want to do that. Like, well, you just said you'd do anything. But actually, if you don't, if you just say you'll do anything, you're creating a, a workload on that person to think of a job, get it signed off, get you in the company, you know, get all the paperwork done. And actually, like, unless they really know you or really feel like they're your favor, it's a lot to ask. Whereas if you go, hey, I see you guys are struggling with selling out your sponsorship packages for the players, you know, can I can I come in and go on a commission basis and prove to you that I can sell these packages for you? They go, Oh yeah. Okay. I can see that's a problem we have. They're solving it and it's not costing us anything. Let's, let's do it. So trying to get young people or not even young people, people who want to work in the industry to, to offer some specific help rather than saying, I'll do anything is a big change and make that. Yes. Very easy. Um, is a, is a big thing that people can do and it. And it definitely helps. I think in today's day and age, it's very hard for people to differentiate each other, especially with online profiles like LinkedIn and these portfolios and the experience. Like you're always trying to find a different edge. And like you said, if you can find an issue and solve it and provide a, a I'm going to say a practical example for you to show the kind of like your process of thought. I think, like you said, this is where I'm benefiting you. This is yeah. where I can help you rather than the typical, I work hard. I'm good with people. I can do that. Like with all due respect, and even I've been through interviews over the past year, and I've done that same mistake, it's how can yeah. I actually solve a problem that you have today? What is the problem that you have that I can come and add value to? A lot of people mm -hmm. underestimate that point of view, and a lot of people kind of go with the basic one, two, three yeah. skills, weaknesses, these are this, this is that. But um, we can tell that you've obviously taken away a lot from from those internships, and uh, you, you've definitely moved forward in your career to, to learning from those things. And so in your career, you didn't get a job in sports as immediately as you would have expected or anyone, I think, like myself or Ferris would, have, uh, would relate to. But do you recall how you felt at the time now that you look back, like maybe feelings of rejection and 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 um, maybe, um, you know, like you question your self-confidence, maybe. Did you kind of feel that type of uh, fogginess around your head during that time? Yeah, I mean, I think when I left uni, I, I, you know, had all these work experiences and internships. And I, I guess naively, I thought it would be like Arsene Wenger at Arsenal calling me and Sir Alex Ferguson, and they're both fighting over me. And they're like, how, who who can we pay? How can we pay him the most to get him here? You know, obviously, I mean, maybe not to that extreme, but I thought really I would be very, you know, uh, hireable. And I remember doing, I, you know, I've probably done 95 job applications before I got actually my first even interview. And I was like, well, A, have I should I have been partying more? Because if I wasn't going to get a job anyway, I should have had a great time in the four years I was at uni. Um, what am I going to do next? I kind of was like, I had an offer from my dad to go work on his farm. And I'm like, God, if the rest of my life is going to be farming, then, you know, like I, I've really fucked it here. So, you know, it, it was, but that was really like my plan. I, I had like one month left in America after I graduated. And I was like, I'm going to just hang out here for a while and then, I was literally packing up to move back to, to England to go work on the farm. And then I got a call from, from Indianapolis and that was like, Oh shit. And that was like four months ago. I'd applied for that and I completely forgot about it. And, um, but yeah, I, I was remember just thinking like, well, what have I done? Should I focus more on my studies? I was like, I didn't think so. I felt, felt like I'd done the right thing, but then to convert it from doing work for free to getting paid was the hard part. Um, but luckily, I you know I got an I got an opportunity, 
it wasn't very well paid, but it was a really cool learning experience to, you know, start a team or be a part of a startup uh, club that literally never played before. So, yeah, you know, did I necessarily want to move to Indiana? Not really. Did I really want to go? You know, I, I hoped I would be in the Premier League, but I wasn't. I was in the what is the NASL uh, now is like USL. Um, so, yeah, but that's it. it it feels like a long time ago because it was a long time ago. But yeah, I remember feeling like, what have I done? I think to to one extent though, right? Like all those experiences have definitely have like kind of carried you forward, right? You just can't always look at it at the time and think to yourself, well, this is what's going to materialize next, right? I guess it's only looking back. Um, but I guess talking to that Indy 11 experience and, and being in Indianapolis, you know, what was it like working for a, a new club and a new franchise out in America? Um, must have been very, very different to, I guess, like you said, what you thought you would have been doing. Yeah, I mean, I think the the cool thing about Indy was that there were like 13 staff in the whole club. And so we, between us, we had to like sell all the tickets, sell all the sponsorships, build a stadium, build a training ground, build a team, um, you know, organize the, organize the kits, organize the contracts. And so, and I started in like October, September, October, 2013. And the first game was like March 2014 and we had one player one coach and that was it and we had oh, nothing wow. and so like we're six months out from playing our first game we got, we got no training ground no kits um the stadium hadn't been used in 20 years and we only had I think the president GM had done this before uh he'd, he'd started Chicago Fire Peter Wilt so he knew what he was doing we had two or three others who'd worked in sport before but no, I think don't think anyone else had worked in soccer before and that was it. And we had a bunch of young kids like me who were just like, hey, I've kind of done little bits of this and that. And we had a really good like atmosphere within the team and we got on really well, but we didn't know what we were doing really. And so like um, it was a real experience of of building everything from scratch. But, you know, we, we ended up building a team. We ended up selling out every game at like 13,000 people, which is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, we signed a World Cup winner in Cleberson, which was an experience. Um, and, and like, it all came together somehow, but then we didn't win a game all season. So it was like, you know, it, it was interesting, but it was like, and it was such hard work. And I, I, I've, I, I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did in that. And I, you know, was paid basically below the, poverty line i mean it, it was really bad pay it was really hard work i think i did like 52 days in in a row without a day off but one experience and it sure is a hell of a lot better working on a farm so i was <laughs> kind of happy with it but like yeah man i mean i look back at the, the nine months i did there and i was like I, I don't know how i did it or how i would ever do it again but yeah what a great experience what a great club and, and great people as well and i'm still friends with a lot of them now which is which is great you know lots of cool people I bet the club's still probably going strong, is it? Yeah, they're building a stadium. Uh, they've been talking about it for about 10 years so since I was there. So, yeah, they're finally building a new stadium. I don't know if they'll go MLS, probably not. But, you know, they 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 won the championship a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're doing well. They're doing well. You know, I, I find it kind of incredible because when you hear about, like, franchises starting out in, in the likes of the MLS now or even most franchises in the States, they're usually given about a two-year runway to kind yeah. of kick things off. And to your point, you guys had six months, which... From I guess from your perspective, it was a great trial and trial and error kind of phase and a great testing ground to really test yourself and to learn as quickly as possible. But you know, it comes with its stresses, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were people there for about a year, I think, and I joined sort of because I was team operations. It wasn't a team to do operations for, but yeah, I mean, for us to be in October with one player. And then, like, how yeah. do you build a squad? Like, how do you build a squad from scratch? Well, you don't get MLS. You get to pitch, you know, take players from other teams. You do not get that in in, in the NASL. So we were like, we were hiring school teacher. We had a school teacher who joined. We had we signed a guy from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's club Molder on loan. Uh, we had a guy from Southampton where I'd worked. Who I, you know got released from there. But we were all like, everyone in the club was just like, hey, you know does anyone know any players and and like it was wild because it was like the hairdresser's son was a player and we're like okay easy but then you like everyone would pop up and like you know especially in america it'd be like oh hey my my son plays soccer and you're like okay well you know let's have a look at him and he's like 12 and you're like okay well no he's not <laughs> you know but like people just don't have a good like idea of level and it was really hard for us to see level because you sign the second player and then suddenly you get a bunch of better players 
then he's suddenly not even playing, even though he was your second player. So mm. how how do you find that quality? It was it was really interesting, um, but chaotic and crazy. Yeah, but a good a good learning experience for sure. Yeah, I know you you did mention there about um about the role, like very briefly, where you said it was like an operations manager role, but ultimately, what what I suppose it was all hands on deck because of the short time frame. But ultimately, what was that meant to kind of entail, Hugo? Basically, everything that wasn't football uh, or soccer or, or you know around the team. So, um, but I was like kit man because we didn't have a kit man. So I was doing all the all the laundry. Uh, we finally got an intern to do. It. I don't know how we did an internship for that, but you know anyway. Uh, but like, does picking the kit, ordering the kit, preseason camps, uh, contracts, international registrations, finding them housing, onboarding them. Um, player appearances um blah, blah 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 like everything budgeting for the team like it was it was such a good experience but if i look at like what for example brentford my most recent club we probably have 20 people doing what i was doing by myself in indy mm-hmm. uh, and that's not me saying how amazing i was we did everything to a very poor level because we had no one had any time and i didn't know what i was doing as well bear in mind so like it was just, you know, the, the sk- but we were getting 13,000 a game, which is like, what, League Two, League One, you know, uh, yeah. attendances. So the people were coming to games, but it was just, yeah, chaotic. It was it was crazy. Like, yeah. But anyway, a, a great time. I think it just kind of goes to show, right? If you build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to that analogy type of thing. But it was, it was obviously great to hear. And I think to the point where you made there, where you kind of got a first taste for player care and, and the well-being aspect of it all kind of walk us through that because obviously i've heard on, on on other interviews you've done that and let, then led to a move back to to the uk and ultimately with with your first major european rights holder in southampton yeah i mean it was funny i had an agent who sent me uh the welcome document that i did at indy which i had completely forgotten about but it was like my first like player care thing which it wasn't even like intentional it was just like a one pager with no image imagery of this is how to live in indianapolis and i look back on that i'm like wow that's that's crazy that i even had the idea back then uh, and now it's like a key part of, of what we do but they're like 40 pages rather than one page um but you know it was it was tough we had players on 500 a month you know which is not you can't live on for six thousand dollars a year so you know we had players on that and then we had players on you know 20 grand a month and it was a really different um you know a real spread of of, of salaries and backgrounds we had some like rich indiana kids who could live with their parents we had some really like uh tough guys from tough Honduran communities who'd never been outside their, their country. Um, we had an international uh, World Cup winner in Cleberson. And so like you had just such a wide range of people that you had to bring together, none of whom had ever met each other in a city where we didn't have soccer. We didn't have a team and just like trying to pull it together. But if I said there was a strategy to it, I would be completely lying. It was just fighting fires every single day and every single night to try and make sure that it didn't collapse. But you know, we, we went way over budget. We didn't win a game. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, it wasn't like, Oh, this was, you know, I, I had an adversity and it was a massive success. It didn't fall apart, but that's probably as much success as I could say it was in hindsight. Um, but, but then, yeah, I went to Southampton and, and like I'd interned there. Um, Ronald Koeman was manager and he wanted a team manager, which was like, a role that he'd had at Barcelona. And I think in Europe, it's more of a common role. And so he said he wanted a team manager and they were like, well, we can, we can give you this guy, Hugo, who was an intern. Um, so they gave me a call actually. and were just like, would you like to do this? And I was like, yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. Like sure. And so had in my notice and, and moved to to the premier league. Um, but that was you know, to, to be 23 and like, you know, basically the main guy for a premier league team, was was a huge step up again and you know you're going from guys on five hundred dollars a month to you know seventy thousand pounds a week you know it's it's a it's a big change and like we would often have to explain it indie like what the team was or they'd think we're like a high school team or a college team or they'd come to games and not know the rules or whatever it was and then you're in the premier league and i think like two months after we no my first my first game was an eight nil win against sunderland and then we beat Man United at Old Trafford like a couple of months later. And you're like, 
I was just losing like 4-0 to the Dayton Dutch Lions. And now I'm on the bench at Old Trafford as we're beating Man United. So yeah, a, a very quick change in terms of of scale and, and and level of role and everything. It was it was fascinating. I find it quite interesting, obviously, and I think it speaks maybe to a little bit perhaps to how bigger clubs have shaped up and, and how they run. But obviously, Ronald Koeman coming from where he'd come from, obviously having someone in that role that kind of manages the technical staff, the playing staff, or at least tries to make their lives easier and trying to then impart it on on Southampton and, and wanted to bring you in. I just find that super interesting. And it's very forward thinking of them, knowing that it's a critical piece, right, to, to get set up and kind of um, set the scene for us, I guess, um, Hugo, in the sense of, obviously, I know you said the role was a player manager, but yeah, fairly liaison, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if, well, to that end, I suppose you know, kind of walk us through, you know, what that is, and even set the scene really about what is player care and welfare for those of us that aren't too familiar with it. Yeah, so I mean, the role at Southampton was basically taking care of the manager, his coaches, and the players, and like anything they needed off the pitch, but also like I ran all the trips home and you know all the matches home and away, so like anything they needed, I was just with the team all the time. But I was like all you know like making sure that the, the plane was on time, the hotels had enough rooms, all that kind of stuff. So I was really embedded in the team, um, but they hadn't really had that role before. So it was new to them. And at the beginning, it was kind of like, well, really, you could do all of this stuff kind of thing. And I didn't really know what I was doing either. So, you know, it was just kind of figuring out which was great. Um, but that was sort of player liaison. And player liaison is kind of the old term a little bit, which is more of like a it tends to be like a one-man band who's kind of reactive to problems, um, whereas player care is more of a proactive department of of, of support for um, you know players and their families, and it kind of covers everything that's not football or medical around you know a, a football team. So you know it can be uh, team travel, but it can also you know mostly it's onboarding of players, uh, supporting the families, um, you know player appearances. Um, it could be mental health. It could be their personal development off the pitch it could be education it could be basically every club has a slightly different model of it so it's just trying to be proactively supporting these guys when they come into a club uh, and their families to try and you know minimize the risk of failure because they're often expensive assets um, but really trying to be a warm person focused you know guy or girl around the team who isn't worried about you know, how many goals they're scoring or, or how they're playing. It's more, are they okay as a person? And, you know, try and help take the pressure off a little bit of 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 Premier League or elite football, which is, you know, very, very high pressured. I mean, I, I suppose I can, in one sense, and obviously I'm not a football player, neither am I a huge multi-million pound asset, but I made, recently made a move in my life where I went from one part of the world to the other. God knows it's, I suppose it's not easy, right? It's nice to have certain things in play or rather someone to kind of just help you and, you know, guide you along the process. And it makes the world a difference. And I suppose when you're in high-level football, competitive football, it's the world of difference between being able to show up on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and um, potentially, you know, not being in the right frame of mind. So I'm sure it was a, it's a critical piece, isn't it, Hugh? Yeah, I mean, it is. And, and like, um, you know, it uh, when you go to clubs that don't either have any player care or don't have good player care, you know, you have maybe a player who just went on on a website and found a house but it's an hour away you know even though it's 10 miles away in london 10 miles is an hour you know if not more so you know you've got we have i've been to clubs where players are stuck in hotels for three or four months because they don't know how to do referencing on a, on a property or you know they're taking ubers everywhere because they don't know how to get a car loan or, or you know or get the paperwork done or you know so they, they or they don't learn English because they've never been told they have to learn English lessons or if you know you have to learn English or whatever it is so you know there's there's major things where it's like it's not just like oh it would be nice it's like these guys are you know sometimes 18 19 moving to a country where they don't speak the language and not only are they expected to flourish in a new city without speaking the language, they're also probably on TV having to play in front of millions of people and focus on that as well. And so the idea that clubs wouldn't have this is insane. Um, and, you know, you're an educated guy who who's who still struggled with moving, you know, to to you know, to a different country because it was just, some things are different. Like, how does it work? How, when do you put the, when do you put the garbage out? When, when do the bins get collected? You know, how do you pay your electricity bill? And, you know, I think when we look at, you know, players and they go, well, they've got loads of money. Yeah, sure. But like, if I was 19 and I moved to Senegal, I would really struggle. So yeah. why would we judge a 19 year old Senegalese guy for coming to England and struggling? So, you know, I think it's, it's just about, 
being compassionate but putting yourselves in their in, in their shoes and and just seeing their you, you know their world through through their eyes people people really do underestimate that shift and that change i think at the end of the day you're human and in football like you said because of the money that's involved and how much people are getting paid and all these fees it kind of shadows everything else that has to do with the basics of people age level nationality language uh, even education there's such a lack of understanding in that even in today's day and age there's a lot of light being shed on it um but we talk a lot about players and your role and how you've had to help these players that's kind of what we've talked about now but i think and i'm not sure i've i've really got to understand this and i can't find much about this but you you have to understand a lot of these players you have to be there for them on so many different levels literally like from getting car loans to probably even being a person they want to open up to and talk to how did that how did that wait you know because i do feel like sometimes it can be weight like having all of people's pressures and all of people's problems onto yours how does that feel to you and how would you handle that because i can imagine sometimes anyone would feel somewhat overwhelmed yeah i i, I don't know i, I think you always want to have like a professional friend that you could kind of, who gets the industry because like, I find that I have friends who like football, but they don't necessarily get the pressure of a football environment. So it's usually in each club. I have like a, a foot, a friend who's in the department, you know, you're not in an in department in the club who I could talk to about stuff. Um, but some, you know, a lot of times you can't share, you know, you can't, you can't give away what people are doing or people can work out quite quickly who you're talking about. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to have a good work-life balance, and 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 that's something I I got wrong in early in my career was, you know, I I moved to Southampton where I didn't really know anybody, and so all I did was work because it was the idea of basically sit at home alone or do work, and actually work was quite social because you're hang, you know hanging out talking to people every day, and so actually work was quite enjoyable, but it meant I never did anything other than work, and so you know, then I really wouldn't have that work-life balance. Whereas when I went to West Ham, I, I moved to London. I was a senior in a department, so I had people who could cover me. And so I was like, I'm going to try and do cool social stuff, you know, three, four, five nights a week, whatever I can to really enjoy that balance. Um, but yeah, I think you also get used to it. And I think that's it's probably not a good thing, but like, I, I don't think I felt really properly under pressure for, for years now because I'm just kind of used to having... Like, I feel like I've seen a lot of what's going to come up and like is always a solution, especially when you're not limited by money. You know, we we're lucky that, you know, a lot of people have problems in the world, but we also have problems in the world, probably sometimes different problems. But we have budget to be able to fix things. And, and funnily enough, money makes the world go around. So when you have a resource either from the player themselves or the club to come up with creative solutions, then you know, there's very little that's literally impossible at that at that point. So, you know, it, it's nice to try and solve things for people and sometimes you can't but oftentimes you you can be the ones that actually take the stress off people rather than you don't have to put it on yourself but you can solve it by being creative and and that's really rewarding to see people really happy and you know when when I see players who are really thriving and flourishing and I know that we've done a you know done a good job of onboarding them then it's it's massive it's a massive boost and a massive privilege so yeah it's great no, that's great to hear. And I'm, and it's great to hear that you've also been able to take care of yourself and you have that mindset of, you know, at the end of the day, I, a lot of it is keeping oneself busy. So you keep yourself distracted in some sort of way. And if it, it seems that you did like your work a lot and you met a lot of cool people. I can tell from your time in Southampton. So there was a lot, uh, a lot uh, of work there and a lot of good work done. Um, but in terms of the environment itself, and you, you, you were saying not a lot of people understood the role and a lot of people understood exactly what you were doing from a day-to-day -day basis but uh how how was that when you were coming into the office what would people talk to you what were the questions people were asking you especially because you were so close to the players I'm sure a lot of people were around you what kind of environment were you in when you were kind of given that title of player liaison officer or you know you're around the team you're around the players because a lot of people might be just like oh sign me this get me this can you talk to like how does that work for you how professional do you keep it how do you manage your boundaries because in football it's a bit of a rock and roll style for players and i'm sure you being that close a lot of people ask for favors and how yeah. do you handle that yeah i mean it, it's 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 something that i've probably got pretty numb to and it, it's probably one of the unfortunate things is like you know I, I do get some stuff but actually when i ask a player to sign something or to get a shirt or to get boots or whatever it changes my relationship with them 
because I'm I'm operating at like a peer level. And when I ask for a shirt, I then become a fan. And it's like that it, it, it doesn't like if I have a really, really good relationship with a player and I say, hey, can you sign me one of your shirts? They're like, fine, no problem. But if I don't know them that well and then I ask for a signed shirt, it's like, OK, this guy's a fan. I'm actually not going to engage with him like I would. So I think early in my career, I you know, I have a great shirt collection in my office here. But like I, 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 I don't think I've had a shirt in a couple of years now. I just I don't really care for it anymore um, because it's just the ask is embarrassing and and. I actually don't have anyone to store them or put them anywhere anyway now. So I've got literally hundreds sat here and I, I they were in a, they're literally in a box in my office here because I've nowhere to put them. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a difficult one though, for sure. I, I can definitely picture, I can't even picture myself being in that situation, especially with all my friends who are big football, footballistas and always yeah. ask fans and pictures and stuff like that. But uh, it's uh, it's great to hear how you've handled it. And I think there's a lot of EQ aspect to the role that uh, maybe we should touch on a bit. But I think we can talk about that maybe further. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could talk about West Ham United and how that came to life for you. So so you're at Southampton, you're working this job as a PLO. Um, mm-hmm. West Ham come knocking on the door. Do you find a job application? How does that come about? Uh, yeah, so I was at Southampton three and a half years. I was pretty much done with it. I, I, I was... I was bored in Southampton, the the city. Uh, I you know I, the club was was nice. Um, the the players were good. The 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 manager was you know I enjoyed working with the managers, but I hadn't really seen any progression in three and a half years. I was struggling to be in Southampton. Just I felt like I was wasting my younger years, and so I really really wanted to get to London. Um, and so I was kind of like, well, do I just keep? Do I actually just leave football and get a normal job in London and just be more happy? um or or whatever and then actually jose font uh the portuguese uh center back he moved from southampton to west ham and was like hey i think you could really do good work here and then uh there was a, suddenly a vacancy for head of player care and he he texted me and he was like you, you should apply and i did and i did one interview and i got hired uh, as head of player care which was really cool because i went from being kind of i was by myself at southampton but i was at the junior to then being a head of department, part of the senior management team around the, you know, the first team at West Ham and also able to hire a team and just, they left me to it. Like they didn't tell me, they were like, you're the player care expert. You decide what we need. You build the team. You decide what we should be doing and focusing on. And that was really good. So I didn't have to worry about like, am I getting into trouble for this or, or whatever? It was, it was pretty much free. And it was just a brilliant experience, and it was it was the best thing I ever did was move from from Southampton to West Ham. And and that transition of kind of being junior to leader, and you know having all this responsibility, I'm, I'm sure it might have been a bit more challenging to you. You've seen the job, you've seen people, you know how to handle people. That's not the problem. But in terms of a, I'm gonna say a corporate structure and putting everything into place, did you find that hard with South with Southampton? Obviously, I, I do believe it to be a smaller club than than what mm-hmm. West Ham is. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more paperwork, there's a lot more rules, there's a lot more regulations, or is that something I'm just imagining? Like how is yeah, that- no, I mean, West Ham wasn't more rules and regulation. It was a lot more freedom. Um, it, okay. it's, a, it's a bigger club, but I, I, you know, it was run very differently. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, but you know, the, the, one of the first things I had to do was was analyze the two staff that were there already and then you know had to let them both go which was really difficult they were older than me um they had been there a long time and that was a really hard thing to do aged what was i 27 you know going in as this new head of head of player care and then basically within three months having to let two people go um but actually, like it gave me, it gave us the fresh start to get two really good people in, which we did. Um, but that was, that was, you know, like when you're the when you're the little kid, it's not, you know, you always say I want to be a manager. But actually, being a manager isn't just money and 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 salary. Uh, sorry, money and, and status. It's also like can be you've got to be harsh and you've got to be tough sometimes. And I think f- having to let two of the two go really formed me as a you know really made me grow up as a person and 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 really was like I'm changing these people's lives now I've got to be 100% sure it's the right thing to do and, and I, I do believe it was um but yeah you know that was that was pretty tough early on and th- when I joined West Ham we had massive fan unrest in, in the in the stands they were very unhappy with what was happening at the club it was aggressive it was violent at times 
And I'd come from Southampton, which is a really nice, friendly club in the countryside in, in, in Southern England to, you know, this East End tough, you know, um, you know, tough club, but tough as in it's a tough place to go. You know, when you're an away team, it, it was a tough place to go as a unhappy home team. And so very quickly having to step up into a leadership role and make decisions when I didn't even know really what was going on. But again, learned a huge amount in those initial couple of months. And and then as it kind of calmed down, uh, we I managed to grow and get a good team. In, and then it was it was easier after that. But yeah, it was it was really interesting time to join for sure. And did you feel like a lot of the transition was you getting to know the players and really understanding their needs from the get-go? Or was it just, I'm going to hire the right people to kind of, let's set a philosophy, let's set a way of work, and then we'll move on from there. How What was your approach to coming into the job and for you to be like, okay, this is these are the standards of player care that we need to put? Yeah. Yeah, I think we, so the first three months I just observed. So I let the, the guys that who were there before just kind of run things. And I said, I'm just going to keep an eye on things and have a look and speak to people. So I, I had that kind of, um i guess transition phase which was great and then in the summer we made the changes um hired two good people but they were new to the industry they never worked in football before so they were new to it i was still pretty new i didn't have a lot of connections in in east london i didn't know you know a lot of people but i just tried to solve problems for people that hadn't been solved before so speaking to the players about what was the thing they struggled most with the club um and trying to get some big wins for like the big big voices in the changing room so you know like a like a mark noble or um someone like that marco anatovic another big voice um you know trying to get them on size and then trying to pick up maybe some of the players on the fringes as well to sort of integrate them a little bit more but yeah you know there was a there was a distrust of me when i came in they didn't know me um they liked the guy before me uh you know they probably felt he'd been unfairly treated so it wasn't easy to come in there, but actually I said to them, I'll, I'll prove to you within, I don't know, a year that we could do a better job than, than never done before. And and within a year we had a hundred percent buy-in and it was great. But the first couple of months was, was, was tough trying to get to know people. There were people who weren't happy. I was there. There weren't people who were, were trying to undermine me maybe. Um, and there were people who were really helpful and I got on really well with. So, you know, it's just, it's just funny how it works, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting time for sure. And by this point, you moved to West Ham, you're establishing yourself there, you're getting your team together. By this point, did you feel a strong calling to what to continue down a career path within this space? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I It was kind of just the, the natural... To be honest, it was the only job I'd been offered since I started at Southampton. So it wasn't like... You know, I had like a, you know, a dot, a, a board on my flat home. And this is what, you know, this is where I'm going to go. And this is where I'm going to go next. It was like, I knew I wanted to leave Southampton. This worked well for me. It was a great step up. It was a great, a lot more money. It was in a better city. And I was just excited to do it. And I kind of was like, I'm just going to see how it goes. I think, you know, I'd hoped that I would go to a, a top four club at some point. Um, and you know that didn't happen as an employee but it's happened as a consultant and so you know I think it was I I knew that this was an area ripe for development and I knew that by going into Southampton and into West Ham I was able to make quite a good impact quite quickly but at that point you know in in, in early 2018 I, I don't think I was thinking this is a business or this is a you know something I can really change I just thought I would actually seem to be better than average at a fairly new industry and I'll just keep going and see where it took me really. You mentioned there as well, Hugo, about just how much obviously buying you had to get and, how, and I suppose solving their problems. That must've been a lot of interaction, right? With other departments and other people within the club and even probably outside. But I suppose I'm, I'm quite curious to understand, you know, how much interaction is that between someone like yourself and then the other departments within the club? Yeah, a lot. Uh, I think if you're doing this job well, it's making sure that you're touching base with people all the time because they're, they're going to need you, but you're also going to need them. So if you piss off the guys in finance, you know what, your invoices will get delayed or they might get delayed or they might get lost or, you know, this might get not get, get you know, where it's on the borderline of a policy, it might not get approved where, you know, if you have a good relationship, it can be approved. And I think 
some player care staff, they say, right, well, I've got to gatekeep around the players and I've got to basically protect them from anyone. And I will just say no to everything. And I was like, yes, I agree with that. You know, you do need to protect them and stop them getting, um, you know, taken advantage of or their time wasted. But actually, you know, if I knew that the guy in accounts was a big West Ham fan and I knew, you know, I'd keep a note that it was his son's birthday coming up or whatever. And I know his favorite player is, Aaron Cresswell I'll get us Aaron Cresswell shirts sent over to him and just go like oh I know it's little Timmy's birthday like here you go without needing an ask back because I knew that in a week's time or a month's time when I needed Aaron Cresswell's moving expense to be paid I could call him and go listen mate I forgot to put the paperwork in can you give me a hand and he go yeah no problem and it's this kind of like exchange of favors which is it's not really like a pure currency, but it's like if you get people on board with what you're doing, it's much easier to work with them. And I, I, I've never worked as a culture of fear or intimidation like some people do. Some people see their role as kind of like, yeah, just to keep people back with like a stick. And I'm just like, no, like I want to try and help you achieve your goals. We might not have the same goals. Like if you work at commercial, I don't care if we make 20 million this year or 30 million this year from commercial revenue. It doesn't change my life. Yeah. But I understand that it's important for you, but you need to understand that if you just sign a sponsorship deal where the players have to do a hundred appearances in Australia a year, it's going to be, make my job very hard because we're not going to be able to get them there and, and then it's going to cause problems. So working with people to try and solve problems is always easier. Um, but yeah, I would probably spend half a day a week uh, at the stadium talking to the staff there, just just going around chatting, bringing biscuits, bringing whatever, you know, signed cards for them to give to suppliers or their families or whatever they wanted. And just really trying to bring the the, the training around the stadium together, I think is a really important way thing to do. And it's something you, I see now as a consultant at clubs where it's like a major thing that clubs fall down on is this like <clears throat> internal understanding of priorities and why it's yeah. important and all that. So, yeah. I think you see the best run organizations in the world are the ones that do that the the, the best really and, and have those, I think every department kind of understands the, the, how they all relate into one another. And obviously if you can get departments within a football club working in tandem and even just having an understanding, then you're obviously going to get a better outcome and result. Yeah. I think, um, Obviously, you mentioned how moving to West Ham was gave you a bit more freedom than than previously at Southampton. But I think you also said about the challenges there. You know, in particular about having to let two people go at the time. And I suppose at a young age, that was a diff- like you said, it was a difficult thing to do. But I've also heard you say in a previous podcast that you've done how it was also one of the proudest moments of your of your life when when you did sort of finish up. And I'm just I'm just curious to understand, you know, what were some of the um, fondest memories and proudest moments in in particular that that you recall from your time at West Ham, Hugo? Yeah, uh, I mean, we had, I mean, the, the co- we, we we took the club through COVID and I think that was, you know, that was, there was a lot of pressure put on, I guess I was probably third or fourth in the team, but head of medical club doctor was probably the first and then myself probably third. But it was, that was a crazy time. And and, and when, when the, the league stopped, it was nine games to go. And we were level on points for the relegation zone. And it was like, we have got to be ready for this. We've got to be ready for when the, the games come back. We've got to be ready. And it was really difficult because we didn't know, like, like I remember the prime minister said, I think he said two weeks. And so we were like, okay, we want to keep training, but like you weren't allowed to be outside. And so we're getting like David Moyes going, so can we train? And we're like, no, no, no one is allowed out of their house. And he's like, okay, but... And then it was like, you can do your hour of walks. Uh, and it was like, well, can they train? It's like, no, it's not an hour of training. It's an hour of like going for a walk, you know? And it was like all of this kind of stuff. And it was just, it, the rules were just changing all the time and it was chaos. But actually like we pulled together as as, as a staff and there were like three or four of us really sort of leading this COVID response from the team side. And we came back, I think, possibly the best prepared of any Premier League team. Like, as in we hit the ground running, we absolutely flew in those next nine games. We easily stayed up. We beat, I remember us destroying Norwich away, who just didn't show up. And like, but we went to Man United away at Old Trafford. I think we were already safe, but like, it was just like, they were much more cautious than we were with this stuff. And we kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit more. And the club just can basically from that that time got momentum and like you can say 
they won the European Cup last season as a kind of continuation of that momentum. They've really been on ever since. They have a couple of dips and everything, but like what we did in that COVID time just changed the trajectory. Because when I started, it was like, we, you know, that that season we were kind of like up and down and it wasn't great. And we'd had um, Moyes, then Moyes got sacked and Pellegrini came in and then Pellegrini got sacked and Moyes came back. And it was a bit like, what are we doing all over the place kind of thing. And, and, and then that 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 time was great but i think when i left the you know football's a very transient place people are used to people coming and going players staff whatever but I, they they pulled the the staff the manager pulled the staff and players together and they'd got me a really really nice gift a really thoughtful gift and then like david did a david moyes did a really nice speech and like he just didn't have to do that and it was just, I could see there was genuine appreciation for that. And I think it's very easy in football that you, you kind of, I've worked with, you know, nearly 200 players in my life. I'm not in touch with many of them, but actually in those moments where you cross paths again, and there's that genuine, like, oh my God, it's great to see you, like, or whatever, or people checking in or something. And I think I felt like a little bit, like it was more than just a job at that point. And maybe that's still naivety, but I think like, I genuinely felt like I left that place in a better place than I'd, te- I'd, I'd started it. And um, yeah, really proud of what we did at, did at West Ham. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that speaks to, I guess, just wanting to become a, a, a high performance, I guess, organisation and culture, right? And setting up those foundationary elements to really allow you guys to do it. And obviously, you know, it's one thing you can't control what goes on in the field, but you can control the elements that, I guess, happen behind and off the field. And so that that that's actually a really nice story to to have heard Hugo. I suppose then just just following on from from what you just ended with, but you know what was the motivation behind wanting to leave West Ham and then obviously now going on to to be the founder and managing director of um, the Playcare Group. Yeah, I think I'd probably you know I'm always someone where when it becomes easy I get bored and you know I, I'm not saying. West Ham was easy but it kind of had plateaued we'd we'd done a lot of good work I'd changed a lot of things and and basically player care had gone from you know down here to up here but actually like I couldn't really see how we make it any better like like I, that's not saying we were perfect but as in in the infrastructure of the club with everything going on, on around it I wasn't sure that if I'd stayed for another two years what would be different in two years and so I was a bit like well I'm not sure about this. And, and, and at the time, you know, I'd had, I'd always been like an organizer of the player care, like um, dinners. We had used to have dinners every six months and I would always, always speak to the other people at the clubs and pull things together. And I would be good at networking. And I, you know, I'd always be kind of a lot, one of the go-to guys for people in the industry to get help for. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that there's a business here really, but I was also probably burnt out to be honest. Like COVID was incredibly intense and, the ever-changing rules was was really tough to deal with and like um yeah just just I think that was the government didn't know what they were doing and so therefore we didn't know what we were doing and the rules seemed very like I don't know very meaningless in, in especially in hindsight when you look back at some of the rules that we had in the UK we just didn't seem to make much sense and you were having to argue with people to you know uphold them and then two minutes later the rules would change and you're like oh no you can do that but you can't do this now and it's like wait what like you know it was just it was tough and I think I was burnt out and and I hadn't really had a break a proper break I mean you could say since I started Southampton well since I started Indy really but I hadn't had like a holiday even in, in that COVID season we went for like 13 months flat I had two weeks but I wasn't allowed to leave the country and I was working anyway and it was just I was just done, I think. Um, and I, I left on really good terms. And um, I, you know, I helped try to bring in a really good replacement, which we did. And I like, I, I'm still in touch with people there. And it was very much like, I'm just going to go and do my own thing. And, and everyone was very supportive. And, but I wanted a break first. And and my my original goal was to go to Mauritius on a, and work for a charity out there coaching football. I actually signed up for it. And by the time my three months notice had expired, we were back in another lockdown and I couldn't go. And so, because I resigned when there was like one game in October, 2020, where you could have fans. It was so weird. We had, it was Man United at home and there was like, all the stadiums were empty. And then the government were like, yep, you can have like 10,000 fans. So we had Man United at home, we had 10,000 fans. Everyone was sat like four seats away from each other. It was chaos. And then they were like locked down again. But I resigned when it was fans in the stadium. So I was like, okay, you know, it's going to be a little bit restricted, but it'll be fine. 
And then by the time I finished my notice, we were in a three month lockdown. So I was unemployed, stuck in my flat, couldn't go abroad and travel like I wanted to. And so I basically just like chilled for a couple of months um, and, you know, tried to recover from, from, from the game. And yeah, then we built the company and it's, it's, you know, we're just going to have our third, third anniversary in, in a few days. And it's, it's, it's been fantastic really. Well, many congratulations on that soon to be third anniversary. You. you know, just just reflecting that on on what you've kind of said, there was obviously a growing industry or subfield or a sub industry, if I can say that. I use those terms around player care, right? If all the other clubs were kind of leading with that as well, or maybe following suit as, as to what mm. some of the bigger clubs were doing. I guess you, to your point, you saw the opportunity there. But you know, I guess what are you guys focused on as a business, and and what is the I guess ultimately, what's what's your value proposition, Hugo? Yeah, I mean, I think we we have two sides of the business. So we have our B two B, so working with clubs and, and leagues across the world to sort of uh, either analyze their player care or improve their player care. So we don't personally look after players individually. We'll we'll work with organisations to uh, improve their player care provision. Um, and then we have B two C, which is more working with people who either are in the industry themselves or want to get into the industry through our education courses uh, which we, we we run so we kind of have two main sides of it but basically it's just trying to allow you know clubs to have an independent um thought leader who can give them a, a, a appraisal of what they're doing some clubs are doing some really good stuff some clubs are still you know getting up to speed but it's really you know england is ahead of the game but it's it's ahead of a very low performing industry rather than it's like a super great pioneer but there's a lot of countries where no clubs have this or one club might have something and so just trying to get to the clubs and really um improve them and, and help them and, and and get to be a better place so yeah it's it's we, we we luckily have had some really good success early on um and um yeah it, it's it's grown massively compared to where i thought it would be and it's it's we've changed the business a couple of times because we're a small business we can react to what's happening in the industry um but it's been incredibly rewarding so far just just focusing on that um b2c element i guess because ultimately that i think that's who our kind of target audience is right when we do this podcast but I suppose wanting to forge your career within that space and within player care, what what do you feel are the skills required really for a role within within player care? And obviously, I'm, you touched on it before, and um, and Amr mentioned it as well about it being soft skills heavy, right? And and I'd imagine it definitely is. But are there any hard skills as well that you kind of need to have? I think you know, it's barriers to entry into football. It's probably the lowest. You know, you can't become a physio if you're. <laughs> without doing physiotherapy you know long physiotherapy course so this is something where it's much more based on you know for me integrity charisma people skills you know languages are helpful but they're not essential um and so what we see is is you know we, we run a, a an online course which is what's well, online and in person but a, a course where we've had people from such varied backgrounds get roles, uh, which has been great. Um, we had one guy who was a Domino's delivery driver, and now he's, uh, you know, running academy operations for a football league team. So, you know, there's just, you know, there, there's massive, massive scope. Um, but I think, you know, there are all sorts of different people, you know, in in my department at West Ham, there was myself who was more experienced in, in football, but had a, a business degree. We had uh, a young lad who was trilingual, who was just a languages graduate. And then I had a, um, a lady who was slightly older than me, who was um, a music graduate, but had worked in HR. And she was like super organized, super policy driven. And the three of us worked incredibly well, despite all being very different and all having different skill sets. Um, and I really like hiring people from outside the industry. Um, I'm recruiting for a role at Newcastle at the moment and looking at people people who apply there's some people who worked in football and I know who they are and there are people who I've never heard of before I'm like wow I love your story you're so interesting I can see you care about people so um the barrier to entry is pretty low but it's more about you know is selling your transferable skills and showing why you could be an asset because the actual player care is it's I would say it's not rocket science. It, it isn't, but also like you can learn that quite quickly. But it's the the human skills you cannot teach, or it's harder to teach. So yeah, I, I would say it's more personal personality driven. And and based off of that, what do you think have been kind of the the building? What what have to be the building blocks of personalities? I know you said charisma, integrity, but 
certain certain traits like if you had to box them into four or five what are necessities for people to really come in and be like you know i have these necessities this is the bare minimum then we can work off of that yeah i mean again i think you know there are different people who will mix with different people so in a department you know the reason we all have different friends is because we like different people and so in, in an apartment it's really important you have a mix of different people because you know one player might really miss his mum, might be 19 and so you need an older figure like a parental figure who is maybe not great at talking to kids about social media but actually you know has a real life experience and could be really warm and kind of be that that parent who can't be there or you might not need someone who actually is going to be honest with that person and be like listen man i don't care who you are on the pitch you're going to fucking sit you know you're going to fit in here and this is what you're going to do and they need someone to stand up to them or they might want someone to joke with them or they might want someone to put an arm around them and so because we're all individuals saying like you you need to have charisma. Well, actually someone who's quite quiet, there might be an introverted player who really responds well to that introverted member of staff. So, you know, but I think, yes, you need to have, you need to be able to stand up for yourself. I think players are on the whole used to getting kind of what they want and used to having people going, wow, you're so amazing. And so be able to treat them as a human being is really important. Um, but, you know, I've seen all sorts of people succeed in this role and I've seen people that I thought would be really good fail. And I've seen people who I thought had no chance do really well. So, you know, I, I think it's more about what is that organization need? What are the playing group like? You know, I've seen a, a championship club, you know, they wanted to, uh, uh, they put a job out, they wanted someone who spoke five languages. Well, it's pretty hard to find someone who speaks five languages, you know, who's going to want to work in, in a rural British club, but actually you look at their playing squad and they had all English players and then one Scandinavian player who most likely speaks excellent English. And so you're like, well, why have you asked for five languages? You know, that you're just, you're ruling out all these really good people who wouldn't have applied because they didn't have five languages. And they ended up hiring someone who spoke no languages either. Anyway, so it was, it, it was one of those things. It was just like, I, I think if you think you can be good at this, you, you've got to be, I think not a fan is really important. Like don't be, I think it's hard to work for the club that you support, but I think even if you do, to be that professional, you know, to be that guy, you're not like, oh my God, um, Ronaldo, I remember your overhead kick and they're he's immediately going to go, no, not interested in you. Um, so, you know, trying to have that ability to, to sort of be professional, but be relaxed, be entertaining, be engaging, you know, but also be, be, be aware of how people react to you. So if someone doesn't want to talk, don't keep pushing them, you know, because they want to talk or, you know, it, it's, I think just emotional intelligence, um, problem solving ability, charisma, I think is important at some level. Um, integrity is massive. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't want to say you have to have this or you, you can't have this because, you know, I've improved wrong enough times, but um, the sort of general things are the ones I've mentioned. And based off of your lengthy career in the industry and in the space, what would you say? So obviously you need, obviously different people different situations but i'm sure there are people like you who are you know again with the experience with the situations you've been in you've managed to morph yourself into what a player might need right what how much of emotional intelligence can be taught to make people understand that sometimes you need to be a, a father figure or a mother figure yeah. or you need to be that introvert or you need to be that hard-headed there are people who can do it all Okay. Yeah. Can you teach people to kind of have that EQ? Because EQ tends to be a, a bit less transferable than, than let's say IQ trying to teach people to, to solve a cube or understand certain yeah. things. Have in your experience, do you think EQ can be properly trained? Trained? No, possibly not. Uh, but you gain experience. And, and and like there are times when I look back in like, you know, I wake up with cold sweats almost at like how I mishandled. A situation or you know like i i tend to try and deal things with a bit of humor and sometimes it was just completely inappropriate or i push something too far or I, I i just and you know and i think you you push and you push you push in different directions and then something breaks and you go okay step back let's take a step back i'm not gonna do that again and i think you know i i will admit when i've got things wrong and and, and i think People are people are respect, you know, no one expects you to be perfect. And if you make a mistake, you go, listen, guys, I 
completely messed up this relationship with this player because I would try to be funny and it didn't work. And I'm really sorry. I'm going to apologize to him. Everyone goes, okay, fine. You know, no problem. If you try and say, well, no, I didn't say that. You know, he's lying. People, people smell bullshit very, very quickly, especially in football. So I think I've got to this point now I've worked with, you know, nearly 200 players from, you know, 40 different countries. I, I, I know, I know what's worked and I know what hasn't worked, but there are definitely people I've met that I haven't met yet that I might struggle with, but on the whole, I can work out quite quickly, you know, like, you know, we signed when I was at Brentford in the, covering the player care department there last year, we signed a player one day after I arrived at the club and I didn't know anyone at the club. I was the new interim head of player care there. He was new, never been to London before. And he's 10 years, 12 years younger than me. And I'm like, how do I, you know, try and engage with this guy? And it was fine. I don't think we'll be like best friends, but actually like we got on okay. And we went for a dinner, which was a little bit awkward because we didn't really have much to say to each other. But actually what I realized was, is he just wants to be left alone and have his own time. And, you know, he wants to be given the tools, but he doesn't need his hand holding. Whereas we signed another player uh, later on who was older, more my age, had a family and actually really enjoys hanging out watching the formula one or, or 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 you know going for a walk or whatever you know he wanted more of an engagement like that so it's just trying to sense what works and trying things but like if you take someone to a dinner and it's awkward and that's the worst thing that happens then great you've done a fantastic job kind of thing so yeah fair and uh, in in this line of work what do you think are the doors and pathways that this career can lead on to Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, we, we are 22 years since the first player care person was made, you know, professionally hired. So we are still very young in this industry. Um, we've yet to see someone in player care really move to a exec level. I think that's coming. Um, but I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of people stay in the job. You know, you don't get a lot of turnover in the senior positions because it's actually like, especially if you really enjoy football, you are there's no better seat really other than being on the pitch um to them being you know head of player care team ops whatever it is because like when Southampton went to the cup final in 2017 I was on the bench at Wembley I was on the bus on the way up there in the hotel I was in the changing room at half time I was in the on the pitch after the game you know dealing with our players and so you know as a fan or as a whatever that's the pinnacle is being in a cup final obviously it'd be better if we'd won it but but anyway like that's a great place to be so if you enjoy it then 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 why not do it and, and why not stay in it but yeah we haven't really seen that next step yet um i think some might become agents some might try and become like more senior but a lot of us don't have a, like a technical football background so it's hard to become like a sporting director from a player care guy because it's kind of a different set of skills so i don't know is the answer i, I don't know but At the moment, I'm trying to focus on building the industry rather than getting people out of the industry. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with that. I think that's just a really nice place to to kind of end things there. You know how how you just said that trying to create and build the industry from from the inside and bring yeah. people into it. But you know, I, I will say, Hugo, thank you so much for for coming on. We really appreciate your time and obviously the insight. And from our perspectives, you know, it's been really really nice to kind of hear your journey from you know, as a student where you did all those internships and even the work experience in the 11 and then across always to Southampton, West Ham and more recently, I guess, Brentford and now managing your own business and obviously making us a bit more knowledgeable and, and, and insightful about the world of player care. It's been really, really helpful and, and, and I'm fairly certain everyone will take something away from this. So thank you again for, for, for sharing that with us and for coming on. Great. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.